Hello, Bookstew viewers, and welcome to part two of my interview with Laura Young, ballerina and author of Boston Ballerina. Uh, we in, spent a lot of time in our first part talking about Laura's development as a dancer. So now let's turn to her active career as a dancer for what was then the Boston Ballet, which is now Boston Ballet. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. So uh, we were taking some pictures of you with some beautiful costumes, three of which were made by your mom. Mm -hmm. And um, can we talk a little bit about the ballets you danced in those costumes? Well, two of them are Nutcracker costumes uh, that I'd used for uh, performances that I did as a guest artist. And so when I went to this one particular uh, venue, they said that they had a tutu for me, but it was not exactly sugar plummy. So <laughs> I called my mom and she said, okay, I'm coming. And my mom and dad flew up to St. Louis with the basic tutu put together. By your mom. By my mom. And this is the headpiece that went with it. And your mom made the headpiece mm -hmm. too? Look how beautiful. And we spent the entire night putting jewels on it for the next day. So um, let's talk a little bit about the, the war horse that the Nutcracker is. So wouldn't you say for most classical companies, the Nutcracker probably brings in half of their revenue for the year at least? Oh, Lord, I don't know if it's half. Um, it depends on what your repertory is and what kind of productions, whether you're using productions that you already own or if you have to build a new one. What's the difference between owning and building a production? Uh, when you build a new production, you build the sets, you build the costumes, and it's yours to keep. Ah. Uh, there are various ways that you can go about getting sets and costumes from another company by renting them. Or once you have it in your repertory, it's in the warehouse, so you don't have to rebuild again. Ah. So, um, so the Boston Ballet's Nutcracker, how many of the roles have you danced in it? Never Clara. Oh, no, how no, come? No, I was never Clara. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a party girl. I was a party boy because we didn't have many boys back in the day. Um, I did one of the gift dolls. I did the... I did parents one year because I was injured. Oh, so you just kind of the stand I, around and act. Can do the parents, acting right. part. Yeah. Um, uh, Snow Queen, Sugar Plum, Dewdrop, Spanish, Arabian, Marzipan. I think I did them all. So why not Clara? What happened? What happened? I was just starting out. So I was in, in the party scene. I was thrilled to be a party girl. Oh, I'm sure. And, and I was even more thrilled to be a party boy the next year <laughs> because it was more, more fun. fun. Right, much more fun. <laughs> that's sad. Boys get all the fun. Um, so I know these days in the kind of crazy competitive world, I mean, if once you're a Clara, I think you're expected that, it, that you know, within five years you're going to be... Uh, Not a given. Really? No. So what, what do you think changes for, for Claire? Is that, they grow, right? Their they bodies grow. Change. Bodies change. Um, emotion changes. 
you know, as you grow through teendom, uh, different goals appear. Hmm. You know, it's it, and it is a lot of work, and not everyone is willing to put that much into it. Okay, and then um, the blue costume, the beautiful blue costume. Oh, the blue costume, Le Corsair. That was for another uh, guest performance that we actually did in Sarasota, Florida, where my parents lived, so it was a little easier. Um, but uh, yeah, she made French cuffs on it and jeweled the, the whole thing. cuffs just knocked me out. I know. And then the last one, of course, is obviously the black swan. It's the black swan tutu from uh, Swan Lake, that tutu danced with Rudolf Nureyev. That, let's talk a little bit about that because we don't want to give short shrift to your partners. Um, tell us about uh, what Rudolf Nureyev was like um, as a person and as a partner. An excellent partner when he wanted to be. If he was upset with you, he, w he would let you know in more ways than one. Um, he could be really, uh, I don't like to use the word cruel, but it is kind of cruel what he did to some of the dancers. Um, he, he belittled one of the dancers to the point where she couldn't dance in front of him anymore. It's counterproductive. You don't get what you want by belittling someone. So that, that put me off. But I saw that happen before I ever had to dance with him. And I swore he was never going to do that to me. Did he ever try? <coughs> he tried once. We were in hmm, Italy somewhere, performing in an old Roman amphitheater. Uh, the dressing rooms were where the gladiators were. Really? Oh, yeah. Rubble. Um, we had taken a train from Naples to Sicily we were per to perform in Taormina. It, wa it was a milk train. It was my birthday. <laughs> and it was a milk train. It stopped every 20 minutes. And it was at least 110 inside, degrees inside the cars. Ugh. We were all sleeping naked <laughs> until the first station pulled. <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, ah! <laughs> um, it took us forever to get to the place where we could take the ferry to get to Taormina and then a bus ride. We got there at half hour. We hadn't eaten. We hadn't had two hours off before the performance to get ready, and everybody was putting in for overtime. Mr. Nureyev was not happy about this because that ate into his gate. And Mr. Nureyev was not on the train, if I recall. No, he was in a limousine and he flew. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, we, got, we slapped makeup on, tried to get warm, do the whole, and during the tavern scene, there's a place where the waiter comes across with five mugs and the friends and, and uh, Rudolph and I have to grab our mugs and drink and throw the mug in the air. And <laughs> so the guys, and we've got like 10 counts to do it in. And he's coming across and, 
and I saw him go like this with his mug towards mine, which was going to send it that way. So I caught it with the other hand, and I said, what's going on? <laughs> and all the time we're dancing, he's swearing at me. Okay. This does not bode well for the third act potida. <laughs> <laughs> so I just let it go, and as the potida went well, no problem. Um, I went downstairs to the dressing room, and I went, to knock, but there was no place to knock. It was stone. Knock, knock, knock. What's wrong, Rudolph? What did I do? Every, you're all putting in for overtime. <laughs> and I, t I, I looked at him and I said, Rudolph, we got here at half hour. We have been traveling all night. Oh. Never he had heard. no idea. He had no idea. So that, um, your memories... But you know, he's... <laughs> <laughs> so your memories of him, um, you know, I, in the book they're very vivid, and I have to remind the viewers that we're talking about a book. <laughs> Everything that Laura has been discussing is in this wonderful book. Um, and there's also uh, a mention of what the AIDS epidemic did to... Um, to your company and uh, to the dance world in general, but can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about what that was like? Because you were real, I mean, so many dancers, choreographers died during that period, it, mm -hmm. like decimated everyone from a certain age group, you know, from the 20s, teens, 20s, on up through 50s. I have a friend who's 60 and he says he has so few friends who are his age because everybody died. Yeah. What, yeah. Was, what was that like being in a ballet company? Well, you know, it, it's a very physical endeavor. And we are all, I mean, we're bodies to bodies all the time. And we had many, many dancers that did develop AIDS and died. And uh, we were unafraid to be with them when the rest of the world was like masked and yeah. gloved. Yeah, and yeah. And we took care of them as best we could. Sheridan Haynes was uh, uh, from South Africa. He was um, my wardrobe master when I was driving the 15 passenger van for BB2. <laughs> He didn't drive, so he says, I'll keep you awake. But he made the headpiece from my wedding to oh. my second husband. <laughs> um, and he was one of the ones that, that passed away. And he, um, we were with him just before he died, and he was in bed. <laughs> he says, okay, get, I, I want to get up. And he got, he got over towards the edge of the bed and the two guys helped him up and he stood there and, and he said, Sherry, what are you doing? I'm dancing. Oh my goodness. And he did, had his last dance. That was it. And it must have been unbearable, I mean it was unbearable for everybody but especially 
uh, knowing from your book how close everyone mm -hmm. in the company becomes. So I'm... It really is a family, more than a team. So now we're going to talk a little bit about um, how you decided to stop dancing, which um, you were how old when you stopped? 42. 40, 42. 41 so. and creeping up on the 42. Okay, so that's certainly um, Tom Brady-esque, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, for a dancer because of the, the strain mm -hmm. on all parts of your body. Mm -hmm. Two hip replacements, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't we take out um, the part of the book where you talk about the end of your career, and I'm going to ask you to do just a little, a little reading. Okay. Despite my unfortunate series of injuries at this time, I figured I'd come out of them and continue dancing as usual. Yes, I knew that at this point it wouldn't be for much longer, but I thought I had another couple of years in me. Thankfully, I was able to nurse my knee to a point where it was manageable, and my groin injury, never a dull moment, had healed sufficiently so that by the end of the 25th anniversary season, I was just able to take on Kitri and Don Quixote again. And this was just in time, as it turned out, to take my own final bows as a professional dancer. In March 89, during my annual contract talk with Marx, I learned that he had decided this season ought to be my last, ending with Don Q. Oh, there was an offer of Nutcracker, but that was no enticement after having performed it for so many seasons. Stunned and not sure what to say, I just sat there in the meeting trying to digest what this would mean for me, both professionally and financially, not to mention my pride. With time, however, I came to understand that Marx saw what I could not at the time. So few dancers, particularly at the principal level, are mentally ready to retire because performing and rehearsing has been part of their daily lives for years, even decades, and they've become attached to their colleagues and local audience. While demoralized because I was not given a warning and therefore didn't see it coming, I'd been in the business long enough to have seen it happen to others. I just didn't foresee it happening to me. I suppose all veterans feel the same. Within the company, we've referred to ourselves as MAs, mature artists, knowing full well that the end was nearing. At the moment, however, tired of trying to piece myself back together from injury after injury, it was easy to acquiesce. So I did what I'd been doing for nearly three decades. I pulled myself together and dove into rehearsals, and now it was my turn to act as mentor to younger dancers, such as Jennifer Gelfand, who was cast as one of the Keetries for that production. Offering advice to Jennifer reminded me of the company's beginning days, back when I myself was a teenager getting help from dancers such as Sarah Leland. I realize, as I think back on it now, that being in that role probably helped to distract me from thinking too much about the unknowns that lay ahead for me. It said that dancers die twice, the first time being when they retire from the stage. The metaphor is, of course, an exaggeration, but for many of us leaving the stage, it is indeed nothing less than a life-altering experience. How could it not be? A dancer's, ho dancer's whole beings, minds, spirits, 
and our very instruments, our bodies, are engaged in the daily pursuit of the impossible. The loss of that poetic and physical striving is profound. Some experience it immediately, sharply, while others feel it over a longer period of time, like a dull ache. For most of us, thankfully, it doesn't necessarily mean that the best part of our lives is over, but it certainly means that a very significant part of our lives has come and gone. Dancing at the level that my peers and I did can be hard to match in terms of whatever's next in one's career. There's an assumption that most dancers will become teachers. Many do, certainly, and fortunate are the students who get to absorb some of the extensive troves of information these former dancers have. But it's not a given that every dancer can transfer his or her performance skills into the craft of teaching. Meanwhile, some dancers simply have no desire to teach, choreograph, or direct a company of their own. Some have a clear idea of what they want to do after retiring from the stage, and sometimes it has nothing to do with dance at all. Happily for all of us, in your case, it did have something to do with dance and the stage. Um, as you have just retired a second time, but from teaching this mm -hmm. time. So I'm going to read a quote to you from, uh, this is from Sarah Young, no relation, I don't think, dance critic from the Washington Post. She said, ballet can be terrific fun for six-year-olds, but it may be too boring and stifling for younger children. Very young children are likely to be happiest just running around to music and letting their imaginations fly, unbound by rules and procedures. Yet offering some kind of baby ballet for toddlers and preschoolers is lucrative for dance schools, what with those captivating parental visions of little ones as adorable princes and princesses. So in your teaching mm -hmm. for uh, Boston Ballet Two and Boston Ballet, you did not never worked with young children. It was not your once, once, once and never again. Never again. <laughs> it was never your preference to do that. What's your feeling about um, when is the best time to, to what's, for teaching movement throughout your whole life, let's say starting as little children and then moving on up if you show the inclination? Well, if you have a child such as I was, uh, very energetic, you might want to put them into a rhythm and movement class. It's, it's structured, but it's not structured like a ballet class. This is why Boston Ballet is, has this young program, the pre-ballet. Pre um, it starts with rhythm and movement, where they can just, they can dance around and be butterflies, but then they have to come back and they have to do an exercise. And then they, you know, so it's, it's, it's a gradual training of, of the youngsters. And uh, ballet training doesn't usually start until around seven. And so at what, uh, what ages do you teach? Or did you teach? I preferred the teenagers. They because of my uh, role as a principal dancer and in directing and, and coaching uh, uh, dancers in the company and dancers that are pre-professional in BB2 and the upper divisions, I never really learned how to do the younger, the younger kids, and there it's it's very specific. So tell, uh, give us a, a day in the life of teaching teenagers when you were 
doing that? Because it's only very recently that you retired mm -hmm. from teaching. Um, humor is essential. You have to defuse some of the uh, toxicity that comes with looking at yourself in the mirror endlessly to find fault so that you can fix it. And I will frequently walk by and say, you know, it's only ballet. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe. Which probably nobody <laughs> says to them, right? You're probably Breathe. the only one whose their parents don't say that to them. Well, some do. Some do. They, they get it. But um, keeping it real is, is, and in perspective is really important because when you're looking at yourself in the mirror day in and day out to find fault, you will ne inevitably find many. And you have to be careful that it doesn't blow out of proportion. So um, in, a, in a typical day, um, so how many classes, let's say someone is at 14 or 15 mm -hmm. and they have absolutely at this point decided that this is going to be their path? Six days a week. After school every mm -hmm. day? Mm -hmm. And how many of those classes would, would, would you stay with the same group of dancers? Um, well, initially, yes, I did, but in the, I, I, I scaled back in my teaching. So I was only teaching three days a week. Um, so I would see one group, then I'd see another group, then I'd see another group, rather than the same group every day. Did you feel like you were able to recognize talent to the extent that, like you were talking about Jennifer Gelfand? How many Jennifer Gelfands? Not many. Jennifer Gelfand, Sarah Lamb, who's with uh, the Royal Ballet and has been for many years now. She's, she was one of my students. Um, or I was one of her teachers. <laughs> <laughs> Truthfully, I was one of her teachers. Um, you, can, you can see the intent and you can see the body type and you can see whether it's got, but so much happens in the teen years to change things around that, you know, you can say you've probably, like Virginia said to me, you've got this, you've got that, you can probably make a career out of it. Right, she wasn't even making, she wasn't making any promises, no. but she was saying, I think if this all stays yeah. together, and you, you can want do it, it enough, that you probably could. So really it is, it, it's mind and body because. Totally. The, uh, that's, that's interesting. Is there room now for more body types? I mean, obviously, uh, eating disorders is an issue, especially as you say, if you're mm -hmm. examining yourself in every mirror for looking for flaws. Um, is there room now for different body types where there maybe wasn't in the balancing mold? I think we've seen that adaptation happening. Um, but the still, it's, I mean, let's face it, the men have to lift you. Right. And injuries for men, backs. So we don't want to be too heavy. Did you, um, did <coughs> you also teach men? Was yes. your class mixed? Oh, yeah. 
So mm -hmm. at any point do they separate into women's class and men's yes, class? Yes, for and variations and for um, separate point work for the women and separate the big male jump. So what do you think has changed the most from your beginnings to now, um, the point that you've retired from teaching? What's, what are some of the happiest changes and what do you regret? Well, we have way more men at the ballet now. So that's an awesome that's, change. That is an awesome change. We have a lot of uh, young male students that are really um, accomplished and eager to go into the profession. So that, that makes a big difference, just for the women as well, because you can do pas de deux classes, which, you know, is always difficult when you don't have men. What about um, the star system as it, as it uh, exists these days? In I mean, ballet? Yeah. I think the audience makes that determination. You know, the, the ones that connect with the audience the best will, will become the stars. Could you feel that? Tell us what a little bit about what that audience connection felt like when it was, I mean, I know at times in the book you say, well, that didn't get as much applause as we would have hoped. And also you do uh, quote a lot from critics in here, uh, mm -hmm. some of whom you seem to be pretty critical of or some whom you seemed you could never please no matter what you did. Yeah. Oh, in the early years, yeah. It was like, oh. <laughs> but they were like, well, it's not as good as what they do in New York. I mean, it was like this total New York mindset. It was initially, but that, that changed. So uh, the connection that you feel with an audience. God, I don't know how to describe it. You can tell when an audience is with you, and you can tell when they aren't. Um, most of the time, I what I was feeling when I was performing was immersing myself in who I was supposed to be. And in that respect, I, I didn't really pay attention to the fourth wall. The fourth wall is really hard in ballet. Nobody wants to use the fourth wall. They're here and they're here and, and, and then there's the audience. But you have to make sure that you use the entire wall when you're using, you know what I mean? And when you're, do, when you're looking and scanning across the audience, you can tell if people are uh, engaged or not by how much movement there is out in the house. I mean whether they're restless or whether they're riveted. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And when you, when you can hear a pin drop, you know you've got them. Uh, well, I guess uh, we're, uh, we have to wrap up. Of course, I could go another to part three, part four. Um, Laura, it's just been delightful to have you here, and I think you've given the Bookstew audience a great amount of information about what it's like to be a performer. The book contains so much about what it took to pull a company together to start from scratch. Um, I was so impressed with the love of your family, how uh, you had support without pushing, which is 
you know, these days seems to be a very difficult thing. So I want to thank you so much for being here for a full hour, for bringing your costumes, for telling your story, and for helping to create the institution in Boston that we love so much. It was my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me on. And I would like to say, go see Boston Ballet. There you go. <laughs> You're definitely allowed to say, go see Boston Ballet. We all should, and we need to think outside the nutcracker as well. Absolutely. There's so much to be seen. So Bookstew viewers, I hope you've been with us for these two episodes and enjoyed them. And please don't forget to search out Laura's book, Boston Ballerina. Thanks and have a good night.